listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Glad to see you here this morning. We are in the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up where we left off in chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. I want to pray for us, and then we'll get right to it. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering around your word to be nourished by it. We are your sheep. We are the the people of your pasture. We desperately need to hear from you, and I pray that this morning as we hear from your word, uh, that that you would care for us, that you would comfort us, that you would reveal to us areas in which we have misunderstood or misseen you, and that you would cause us to glorify your son Jesus together as your people by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in John chapter 16, like I said. Uh, The last few weeks, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about a number of things, and in particular, he is preparing them for his departure. He is about to be crucified, die, be buried, resurrected, and ascend to heaven. And, and that means that he will no longer be with them. He's preparing them for this eventual uh, way uh, that things will go. Uh, and, and the disciples have all kinds of concerns, some of which Jesus himself introduces for them. He gives them some pretty tense news over the last chapter or so, 14 and 15. He, he mentions in particular here in the first part of chapter 16, that, that the relationship between the world and his disciples will be one where it won't be uncommon for the world to kill one of them and think that they have done God a favor. This is, this is not uplifting uh, news, as you might imagine. But, but woven through all of his uh, message to them over the last few chapters, he keeps referring back to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, whom he will send to them to be with them, to guide them into the truth, to help them, to comfort them. And here in chapter 16, he turns our attention once again to the Holy Spirit, whom he again refers to as their helper and as the spirit of truth. And so all of this is, is still coming in the same context of Jesus' departure, but his desire to comfort and help his disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he directs us, likewise then, to the Spirit once again. Let me read the text. We'll pick up in the second half of verse 4 and go all the way through verse 15. Jesus says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. 
concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The disciples are depressed concerning Jesus' departure, more than Jesus' destination. Jesus himself mentions, you're not asking where I'm going. Now, Peter did ask that in chapter 13, but the question is quickly redirected to how do we even follow you? I mean, that's their concern. What about us? What do we do? And here in chapter 16, Jesus points out, "You're you're not really thinking about where I'm going, I don't think he's correcting them necessarily, but he is helping us to understand and the disciples to understand that their sorrow is rooted in the state of things for them. What does Jesus' departure mean for them? If he's gone, but they stay here, how will they live here in this world? And Jesus points out in verse 7 that his departure is in fact advantageous for their remaining behind. Because with him leaving, the Holy Spirit then will be sent to them to guide them in this world. And and when the Holy Spirit is sent, two interactions happen. This morning, I want to focus our time as we look through this passage on two interactions, and then we'll conclude with three implications of those things. But the first interaction is mentioned here in verse 8. He says, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world. When he comes, he will convict the world. The second interaction you hopefully noticed is that he is also coming to interact with and to guide the disciples in all the truth. Let's focus on this first one, his interactions with the world. You notice that word that is used there, the word convict. When he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. Now this whole time, anytime Jesus has referred to the Holy Spirit, it comes in the context of being helpful, of his being the comforter, the advocate. If anything, the the helper is seen as a sort of defense attorney for God's people. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit's interactions with the world, Jesus thinks of it and helps his disciples to see the Holy Spirit's relationship to the world is not one of advocacy, but one of prosecution. The Holy Spirit is sent to the world in part to convict the world, to show the world the ways in which it is wrong concerning a number of of things. Jesus outlines here three ways in which the world is wrong, that the Holy Spirit has been sent to show them their error. He has been sent to convict them in three areas. First, concerning sin. 
The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. And the reason that Jesus gives for this, the reason the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, he says, is because the world does not believe in me. Now, this raises maybe a question. Is their unbelief, their lack of belief in Jesus, is that the way in which they sin? Is this the kind of sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting them of? You're sinners. You don't believe in Jesus. That's, that's the sin. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that the unbelief is really just the, the fruit of all of their sin? You've sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned, and it has brought you to this point where you are in the sin of unbelief, like the culmination of all their sin? Or is Jesus saying that their unbelief is proof that they have a very warped understanding of what sin even is? The answer is yes. It's all three of those things. In classic John fashion, he's got all sorts of meaning, I think, tied up in what is going on here. In one sense, unbelief really is the final, the ultimate sin. It's the, the, the mountaintop of all that sin leads to, all that sin results in unbelief. A failure to recognize Jesus for who he is. But I think we can also say that this failure to see Jesus rightly is, uh, uh, it reflects a misunderstanding of what sin even is. Why, why would you look for a savior, for example, if you didn't really think that sin merited a need for salvation in the first place? And so their unbelief is kind of tied into the fact that they, they, the world really doesn't see sin rightly either. The world doesn't see sin any more rightly than it sees Jesus for who he is. Now, what are some ways that the world maybe misunderstands sin? Some ways that, that perhaps Jesus has in mind here and that the Holy Spirit might convict the world of? Well, I think, I think there are a number of ways. This is not exhaustive. But, but the world is prone to minimizing sin if, if, if recognizing sin as a problem at all, right? Uh, think of the ways in which people talk about what we would call sin or sinful practices or habits or lifestyles. Uh, th these things are often referred to as weaknesses, you know? In the same way that we would talk about somebody having a sweet tooth, someone else may have just a penchant for certain types of sin, or, or, or maybe the word vice. Oh, this is just my vice. This is just sort of the thing that just got a hold of my heart. I can't, I don't know, you know, what can you do? Uh, the, the word, and I love this word, and I've always wanted to mention it, and I'm going to do it right now. The word peccadillo. Have you heard that word? Man, that's such a great word. Not peccadillo, uh, which would be like a cheesy sort of sin. Peccadillo. Yeah. A peccadillo, you know, a, a small sort of minuscule, this is really kind of silly to even worry about it, sort of sin. We, we acknowledge that there's maybe something wrong with us or wrong with our actions, but it's not serious. It's not grave in any stretch of the imagination. We minimize sin. Or sometimes we view sin not so much as, as a thing that we do as a way that we rather feel. It, it can sometimes be summed up by the word shame. Now, sin absolutely y yields shame. It, it leads to 
shame when rightly understood and sometimes even when wrongly understood. We, even as Christians, can bear an inordinate amount of shame for our sin. But, but to think of sin exclusively as merely feeling shame rather than all the things that lead to that feeling is a misunderstanding of what sin is. Related to this, sometimes we think of sin not so much as something we do, but, but rather as something that is done to us, more of a, a passive sort of thing, where we refer to our sin as in the language of addiction or, or victimhood, victimization. This, this is something that has happened to me. Yes, it's wrong and horrible, but I'm not to blame. This is something I couldn't avoid. I'm not responsible for this. This is something that has actually happened and been enacted on me. The point is, the world sees sin as anything but offense against an infinitely holy and righteous God, right? I mean, we'll find any way to avoid that conclusion of what sin is. But as Jesus says here, and, and as the Spirit has been sent to convict the world, Christ is the only remedy to unbelief and the wages of sin. It is Christ alone. And so the Spirit is sent to convict the world of this truth and then consequently to direct the world to believe in him. The Spirit has been sent to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. That's what Jesus says. And so the Spirit therefore comes and reveals all the ways in which we maybe don't see sin rightly. In fact, he, he shows us, he shows the world where its sin is, what it is, and what can be done about it, not through their own means, but through Christ. The Holy Spirit has been sent and is needed that, that the world might see and believe in Christ. And without the Holy Spirit, no one can see and believe in Christ. This is what Jesus has already pointed out to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit has been sent to reveal the truth of who Jesus is in light of what our sin means. Secondly, the world is wrong, not only concerning sin, but concerning righteousness. Now you may think the world doesn't really care about righteousness so much. I, I've seen enough of the world to know that righteousness is not a high value. Well, maybe not, maybe not a biblical view of righteousness, but, but there are ways that the world seeks to make itself righteous, if not before God, then before whatever they perceive to be God. Jesus says, the world must be convicted concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, as we think about righteousness here, maybe for many of you, you immediately jump to the notion of justification for sin, the kind of atonement needed to make us righteous before God. I think here what, what is in view is not, not so much that, but, but rather righteous living, the righteous life, a righteous manner of, 
honoring the Lord and, and doing what is right and living in a way that is right before him, maybe a little bit more than justification here. There are worldly paths to righteousness, right? Before God or somebody else. Uh, despite the world's tendency to ignore or paper over the realities of sin, we still know and have this sort of ingrained understanding that, that something isn't right. And for many people, they even realize that in and of themselves, they, they are not worthy of the Lord. But what do we do about this? How do we, how do we get this righteousness? Well, for, for many in, in the world, it, there's a, a need to save ourselves by good works, right? Well, if, 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 if I want to be perceived as a good person, if I, if I want the Lord to look at me and think of me as good enough for being in his presence or, or whether it's the Lord or some other God, lowercase g, then, then there are things that I must do to present myself as good enough. But you see that this often actually looks like self-exaltation, right? I mean, the, the, the goodness, the righteousness that, that the world often puts forward is just a means of making ourselves feel better about ourselves, making us look better before the eyes of other people uh, to, avoid their, to avoid their judgment. Sometimes, though, it's not doing good works. Rather, it's doing things to pay back the bad works that we've done. Kind of doing penance. You know, well, if, if, I, if I pray this way, if I do these things, if I say the right stuff, if I buy the right products, then these things, this will, will balance out all the, 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 the red in my ledger and will put me in the black again. That's the right terminology, right? Red is good. No, red is, okay. You get what I'm saying? The, 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 the idea that, that we can somehow trigger balanced scales before the Lord because of the, the good things good things that we do to pay off the bad things that we've done. Another way the world misunderstands and is wrong about righteousness is by harming ourselves or otherwise denying ourselves to prove that we're contrite, to prove the, the gravity and, and the seriousness with which we're taking our sin. Uh, if, I just, if I just whip myself enough, uh, then, then I can atone for this. And then another way we misunderstand, and I think this is a really prominent thing nowadays, is by, by canceling other people or, or virtue signaling all the ways in which we are on the right side of, of history and everybody else and these people, they misunderstand, they're, they're wrong, these people are unrighteous, but I, I am righteous. Nobody uses that word, but that is what we mean, isn't it? Now, we, we look at others and we compare ourselves to people who are more obviously sinful, but it's really to show ourselves to be or maybe convince ourselves that we are actually righteous. There's, there's an irony in what Jesus is saying here in particular in light of the plan that the Jewish leaders have concocted to condemn him to death. For his enemies, and there are many, the idea is that, that Jesus is a scourge on the people of God, that, 
that he's actually poisoning the well. And so he needs to be done away with. He must be condemned to preserve the righteousness of God's people Israel. That's why they want to kill him. By doing this righteous thing, we preserve the righteousness of God's people. But you see, you see the irony of this, right? Jesus is not poisoning the well. He's drinking the well dry. He he is is taking on the sins of God's people. These aren't inherent to him. They have been adopted by him because of his love for God's people. He's taken on their sin. And so seeing evil in Jesus is really kind of an incredible irony when the reality is that he, he has taken the world's evil and sin upon himself. All of the world's unrighteousness, he has absorbed in himself which is actually why he goes to the cross, that he might do away with it himself. And so his, his resurrection, his ascension, these things, they, they vindicate, they prove him to be in the right by dying on the cross. They prove that his death was not actually in vain or worthless, but that it accomplished something and they they prove by his resurrection and ascension they prove his own righteousness and so as jesus has said and as the holy spirit has been sent to convict the world christ is the only source of righteousness it's christ and so the spirit beckons the world to follow him And it's interesting, Jesus points out, he says, I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. Therefore, the world needs the Holy Spirit. If Christ is going to be seen no longer, then the Spirit comes and is sent to us, to the world, to show the world how to follow a Jesus who is no longer here physically. Jesus is our righteousness by example, and by the Spirit's testimony, but he's also our righteousness in the flesh. Righteousness incarnate. He is, in fact, our very righteousness as his people. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that because of God's plan, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and salvation, and redemption. Jesus is our righteousness. And the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to reveal this to us. To reveal the righteousness that comes by Christ alone. Thirdly, the third way the world is wrong and needs to be convicted is concerning judgment. The world's wrong about sin. The world's wrong about righteousness. But the the world is also wrong about judgment. Jesus says this is because the ruler of the world is judged. It's interesting. The the people of this world are subject to the, the judgment of the ruler of this world as they follow that ruler. I'm not talking about a particular political leader or group or nation, organization. We're talking about Satan himself, right? We're talking about the the spirit that opposes Christ, that pervades and fills this world. Jesus says that, that the ruler of this world 
is judged. Not will be, uh, not, not should expect to be, but in fact is right now judged. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this about, about those who follow Christ, those whose allegiance belongs to Jesus. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And there's an incredible, painful irony in the world's misunderstanding of judgment and refusal to acknowledge the, the thought of judgment for their sin, their lack of righteousness. Because the, ones, the, the one whom this world follows primarily, ultimately, has already been judged himself. It's a lost cause already. And yet the world rages against the Lord and continues to seek after this ruler of the world, which means that all those who follow him are likewise by nature children of that same wrath. The world has skewed perspectives on its ruler, on, on the ruler of this world and all of his various puppets. Uh, very few people will openly say that they're worshiping or, or, or following, pledging their allegiance to Satan. Uh, but we, we all have uh, our dalliances with his various minions, don't we? And, and the world maybe won't acknowledge it as such, but this all ultimately points to the same, to the same root. And yet we, we seek to, the world seeks to paper over this with various ways of, of reimagining what judgment might look like, usually by ignoring the prospect of judgment at all. And so darkness is called light. can't be judged for darkness when you convince yourself that it's the right thing. You can't, you, in your own mind, you, you're not liable. You're not, you don't have this cloud hanging over your head when, when you've told yourself that it's a rainbow. Or we assume that that the mere existence of various ideas and ideologies and, and forms of sin and idolatry imply their permission. Well, it's allowed to continue. Why should I expect judgment for this, that, or the other when it, it continues to exist? If your God is sovereign over all things, he's allowing this to be the case. Why should I fear judgment when, when this is all allowable and permissible in this world? It's a form of the, the sort of right side of history-ism, right? Well, this is where we are. Therefore, this is good. We, we have come this far. Therefore, this is not liable to judgment, but everything that precedes us is. It, it needs to be wiped out. Or another way we misunderstand judgment is, is that the world refuses to acknowledge any ultimate accountability. It's summed up in the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow, what will happen? We die. Will we be judged? Will we have to own up to the consequences of anything? No. We'll just be wiped out and it'll be over. Everything will be wiped clean. Oftentimes the world will presume upon God's kindness and love while ignoring his justice. 
which is just a much, just as much a characteristic of God as love, his justice. But as Jesus says, and as he has sent his spirit to convict the world, the only escape from the world's sure judgment is Christ. Serve him instead. This is, this is what the Spirit says. He has been sent to alter the world's allegiances from one ruler to the king of kings. So let's pause here. It, do, do you need to repent yourself of any of these misunderstandings? Maybe, maybe this is not how you think of sin. Maybe you think of sin as being primarily actions, things that can be measured or seen and not so much thoughts or misunderstandings. But just like unbelief itself is really the ultimate final sin against the Lord, all of these ways reveal that our hearts are not in line with the truth of God. As we misunderstand sin, as we misunderstand and seek for righteousness in all the wrong ways, as we paper over and ignore the truth of God's judgment, we prove ourselves to be opposed to God. Repent of your misunderstanding. Is the Spirit maybe even now convicting you of, of your own misunderstanding of these things? So the first interaction the Spirit has is with the world. But then secondly, Jesus points out that the Spirit also has been sent not just to the world, but also to interact with, engage with, and shape God's people, his disciples. He says this in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so the Spirit, the Spirit now, he hears, he speaks, and he declares the things of Christ to his disciples. Don't, don't trip over this language, though, or don't, don't skip over this language. Declare, and, and then Jesus says that one of the things he'll declare are things to come. I mean, even the use of these phrases indicate that the Holy Spirit is more than just a mere, a mere person. There is a, div, a divine authority that he has. Nobody declares anything. Not like this, unless you possess divine authority. And yet, he doesn't come and insist on his own authority. Rather, he, he comes in Christ's authority. It's, it's not his glory, even, that is at stake, but rather Christ's Glory. Let, let's unpack this for a minute. He, he speaks only what he has heard from the Father and from the Son. In fact, verse 13 points out that, that all the truth that the Holy Spirit conveys to his disciples, all the things that are to come that the Holy Spirit has been sent to reveal, these things, this truth, these are both intimately connected to the Father and the Son. These things that he reveals and shares with the disciples, they come with the authority of the Father and the Son. It's not his authority, but it's Christ's. It's not his glory, but it, it is Christ's. He takes what is Christ and he declares it to his disciples. He seeks to glorify 
and enable his disciples to glorify Jesus the Son. Uh, for a moment here, I want, I want us to just think how often, and maybe you've done this, how often the Spirit is invoked to justify self-glorifying things. How often do we invoke the Spirit or, or imply that the Spirit has given us permission to do this, that, or the other, or that this is God's plan for me by the Holy Spirit, by, by really actually only ultimately pointing to ourselves? I, I think that's something to bear in mind, right? How often is the Spirit seen as just a, like a, a trump card for us to just do what we think seems best? Well, the, the Spirit has led me. As though the Spirit is some sort of Greek, you know, oracle in, in, a, in a fancy building somewhere that we go to and get, get some sort of affirmation or confirmation of what we wanted to hear in the first place. And then, and then we reveal it to everybody else, not with our authority, but with the authority of God behind it. We need to be careful about how we speak of the Holy Spirit, how we and what we attribute to the Holy Spirit having spoken to us. Does it glorify the Son? Because the Spirit that is referred to here, the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends to his disciples is one that does not exist to glorify you or me. He, he has come to glorify the Son among his disciples. Consider his selfless devotion to Christ and ask yourselves, is that the spirit that you listen to? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, no, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. First Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. This is an extended meditation that Paul has here concerning the, the nature of the Holy Spirit and his relationship to believers. It's lengthy, but I want you to listen to it because I think this is really a helpful way to elaborate on all that Jesus is saying here in such condensed language. He says, Paul says in verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. You hear that? who are doomed to pass away. Rather, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit." For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. <clears throat> the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see that? There, there's misunderstanding here in the world apart from the Spirit. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's work. He illuminates God's people to understand all that God has for them. He takes God's truth and he, he makes it plain to God's people. Now, how does this look? I mean, what, what are maybe the primary ways that this is carried out? And we've talked about this in recent weeks, as recently as chapter 14, where we reflected uh, considerably on the, the Holy Spirit's work in revealing God's will through Scripture. But I want to take us there again, because it's important to bear in mind as we read this passage, that, the Holy, that, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his disciples at that time. Now, certainly he speaks to his disciples today through this passage, and yet the original audience, the original hearers of all this instruction would have been the disciples, many of whom were the, uh, well, 11 of whom became the apostles. And their apostolic office was such that, that many of them actually recorded down scripture for God's people. And, and even the ones who didn't outright record scripture, they were very influential in recognizing scripture for what it was. And affirming, yes, this reflects the ministry of our Lord, whom we knew and were witnesses of his resurrection. And the Spirit, therefore, here, I think Jesus is referring even maybe a little more specifically to the fact that the Spirit has been given to guide these disciples into all the truth concerning things to come, he says, which he did and continues to do today by the Word, through Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Even this language of things that are to come, maybe, maybe as you hear that, you think, oh, he's talking about the future. He's thinking like revelation and eschatology and stuff like that. And, and surely that is part of what is implied here. But I, I think maybe even more than, than way out in the future type stuff, eschatology, end of time type stuff, Jesus is saying the things that are to come, in particular things that pertain to New covenant life, which is, which is, I mean, we're right on the, we're right on the precipice of it here in this moment in history. Jesus is about to die. He, he is going to be crucified for the sins of all who trust in him. He will be resurrected and then ascend to heaven. And his interactions with his disciples will change drastically in that moment. What's to come? How can we be his disciples in the days to come? I think that's what's in view here. And, and what I find so encouraging about that is that the Bible is all about that very thing. The, 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 the Christian life. How, how can we be his disciples? How can we follow him? What are his expectations? The Spirit has given God's instruction and wisdom about his things for his people through, through the word, through scripture. And he helps us today to understand scripture again and again and again. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is the covenant that the Lord, he promised all the way back in the prophets. 
even further beyond that, but look with me at Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. Listen for the word spirit here. The Lord says, I will give my people one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This new covenant is not born out through the gritted teeth of God's people, but through the imparted Holy Spirit given to each of his disciples. As he again and again faithfully, plottingly points us to what God has already revealed by the Spirit in his word. The guidance of the Holy Spirit doesn't correct or diverge from the revelation of our triune God, which was so clearly put forward in Scripture by many of these very disciples. And yet, there is this irony among God's people even that we oftentimes expect something new, i.e. exciting and fresh, from the Spirit, rather than contenting ourselves with the ordinary means of God's revelatory grace, which is the Spirit-inspired Word of God. I was thinking about this this morning driving over to church. You know, we read it and we've said it and we'll say it again and again and again, but you realize at one point in time, Scripture didn't exist. At one point in time, there, there was no Gospel of John, which God's people could look to to understand how they should live. There was, no God, there was no Romans. There was no Second Thessalonians. There was no revelation by which God's people might be prepared for life in this world as faithful followers of Jesus. There was a time where that did not exist. And to be told that the Holy Spirit was coming to reveal and recall to mind all the things that Jesus had already shown his disciples and not only the things that he had shown them, but things yet to come... To be told that would have been, I mean, just unbelievable. It'd be unlike anything that had ever happened. But then, but then to be given God's word in in written out, tangible, readable, rememberable, prayable form by the Holy Spirit miraculously working through men who are fallen and sinful, and yet the Lord managed to use even preserving his own words through them. I mean, it's utterly miraculous. You can't attribute this to anything but the work of the Spirit. And yet here we are today, thousands of years later, where a Bible is accessible in virtually any bookstore you want to go to, in, in anyone's house you can probably find a Bible somewhere, and for us it's just so mundane, we don't even really think about the fact that this is the work of the Holy Spirit given to God's people. It's 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 incredible. And I think sometimes we, we expect from the Spirit something new and exciting and different because we're just sort of bored with what was at one point in time an unimaginable gift from God's Spirit. I guess, I guess what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that meditating on Scripture and seeking the Lord in prayer, that, that too, maybe even above and beyond anything else, is what it means to be Spirit-led. 
In fact, I, I, I don't think there really is much more than that, and there's certainly nothing less than that. To be, to be led by the Spirit of God who has been sent into the world as the Spirit of truth, guiding us into all the truth. Rather than shivers in the liver, we should be so delighted that the Lord has instead given us mashed potatoes to mix metaphors. Now, listen, the, the Holy Spirit certainly gives wisdom to his people, but it's never contrary to his word. And I think sometimes what we view as comfort or peace or the, the sort of calm inner voice that, that guides us in making decisions, for example, that, that, that is simply too subjective and easily influenced by our own sinful hearts to always just be chalked up to the Spirit or to just be expected in every circumstance that we would hear from the Spirit that way rather than through His Word. I'm not saying the Spirit doesn't guide and encourage and give wisdom to His people outside of the Bible. He certainly does. But I'm saying that, that the Bible is where it begins and ends. And that this is the work of the Spirit. This isn't in contrast with the Spirit. It is how the Spirit has spoken to God's people through the ages. How he speaks to us today. Three implications of these things, and then we'll receive the Lord's Supper together. Three implications. One, weary disciples of Christ have not been left stranded. Disciples are sorrowful. They're dreading what's to come. They, they've heard Jesus even talk about the world killing them and, and rejoicing. But how good and encouraging is it to know that, that, that we have not been left stranded? The Spirit has been given to Christ's disciples as their friend. As their friend. Not an impersonal force. As their friend. I think it's ludicrous to read all that Jesus has spoken here of the Spirit in this chapter and in previous chapters and, and not see the Holy Spirit as a divine person. We've, we've been given a, a person to know, to walk with, to listen to. Do we honor and approach him as such or do we think of the Holy Spirit rather as like a, like a magic eight ball? You know, if you shake him hard enough, you might get the, the answer you want. Sometimes it'll be funny. Is that how we think of the Holy Spirit? Do we ignore him? Do we grieve him? Do we quench the Spirit? These are all things that Scripture says we can do. Because he is, has been given to us as a, as a person to know. And in, in this world, are we nourished by the Spirit's wisdom and the good news that he has revealed to us through God's word? Implication number two, convicting the world is ultimately not dependent on us. Right, this doesn't mean that we simply watch the Holy Spirit do all the work, right? The Lord delights to use us in the Spirit's work in the world. Oftentimes we are the, the vocal cords for the Holy Spirit. So we speak the truth of what God has revealed to us through him. But I think it is important to remember, especially in this very polished online age where, where you can you can type and delete and edit and fashion images and words and books and articles and everything you want to be perfect and polished. And so we think that every opinion can be and therefore must be perfectly stated. 
And, and we, we don't just think that about the food that we eat. We think it about the truth that we live our lives by as though, as though the, the conviction of the world rests on our ability to perfectly convey what God has revealed to us through his word and by his spirit. Uh, but the, the relief is that the, the spirit is the one who has been sent to the world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, not us. And so we, we help that process along and we echo what the Holy Spirit says to the world. But it doesn't depend on us. Number three, intelligence, innovation, and independence are not prerequisites to discipleship. Contrary to the, the books that you might see, uh, the, the blogs that get, get reposted again and again and again, the sermons that that everyone has to hear. We, we're not called to reinvent the wheel. That's not the expectation that has been laid on us. We're, we're instead told to listen to the Spirit, to study His Word, and to let the Spirit inform our prayers. Even our prayers, we, we're, we're just plagiarists. That's all we can be. Because we've heard from God's word, we've heard from his spirit given to us. And so we're urged, therefore, to stay the course and to, in fact, be content with ordinary means of grace. And man, I just, I find that to be such a comfort and a relief. Oh, if you are always holding your breath, waiting for literal writing on the wall, you, you, you will never be content with the Lord. You will never be content with your walk with him, maybe is a better way to put it. Because you will always be wondering if you have somehow missed out. If you haven't done things just the right way, and yet it is not up to your intelligence, it's not up to your innovation, and it's not even up to your ability to figure things out on your own, but rather the Lord has given us his spirit by which we might know him. And so I want to conclude with this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Rather, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your spirit. What, what else, who else can we be thankful for but him? You've given us your spirit that we might know you. I pray that we would know you and walk with you in faithfulness. I pray that we would, alongside your spirit, convict this world of sin and righteousness and judgment uh, even as we ourselves are are given and shown all your truth father make us content to walk with you through ordinary means knowing that this is actually an extraordinary thing that you would inhabit your saints that you would dwell among them that we ourselves would be considered to be temples of your holy spirit Lord, let us not grow weary or bored with that truth. Help us to minister to one another in light of it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.